The Apostle Peter encouraged us to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. And indeed, Lord God, we have all in one way or another experienced that care and concern in great and wonderful ways. And even in the midst of our trials and circumstances in this life, the struggles and and, uh, tribulations that we oftentimes uh, meet and uh, run into, we we do know, Lord God, that as, as we keep ourselves in that knowledge of your, of your presence, knowing that you never leave us nor forsake us, we have always your strength to be with us and to encourage us in the midst of what we may see as on the outside, not, not being as encouraging, but Lord, always your spirit moves mightily and has moved mightily in these particular situations that we pray for tonight. Uh, We pray and continually pray for Fernando and ask, Lord God, for the cancer to be completely healed and, and, and taken out of his body. We thank you for the recovery that he's making, but we pray, Father, for complete uh, healing to his body. We pray for Robert uh, Kirkpatrick as he prepares for surgery next week. We ask for your hand of, uh, of guidance uh, with the surgeon and the uh, surgical staff as they uh, take care of him next week. We do pray, Father, that uh, you will strengthen even between now and then, strengthen his heart and, uh, and, and bring healing, Lord, so that you will receive all the praise and honor and glory. And we thank you, Lord, for bringing Martha through this uh, particular uh, uh, mishap that she had with this young man. We, we pray that uh, you'll continue to uh, heal her foot, Lord. I know that it, even though there was nothing broken, there was a tremendous strain to her ankle, and we pray for that in her knee and, uh, and, and pray for uh, the rest of her body, that there will be no major problems with internal organs or anything like that. So we, we just lift her up to you. We thank you for... Uh, giving strength and uh, presence to her family yesterday. And we also pray for the young man. I don't know his name, but I I know, Lord God, that uh, this may be a a time to open his eyes to who you are, Lord. And so may that opportunity come. We ask for your guidance and wisdom through your word this evening. Grant us, O God, your spirit pour it out upon us that we may rightly divide all of your word tonight, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 13, please. Isaiah 13, beginning at verse 1, continuing study of this marvelous book of prophecy. Isaiah 13, verse 1. I'm saying that because I forgot to put my glasses on here. The right ones. The burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, lift up a banner on the high mountain. 
Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger. Those who rejoice in my exaltation. The noise of a multitude in the mountains like that of many people. A tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven. The Lord and His weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. So much has been said and written about history, especially by philosophers, historians, authors, that libraries alone couldn't catalog even the one or two line quotes made over time, being that they are still being voiced to this very day. Now, were we just casual observers of history, we might wonder if anyone is really in charge in the world. In other words, if we were just kind of, you know, casual, humanistic observers. As we look around, we'd have to wonder if there was anyone at all in charge in the world. Consider, if you will, some of these quotes about history. A man named Max Beerbohm said, History does not repeat itself. The historians repeat one another. An interesting thought about history. The great cynic Voltaire said history consists of a series of, of a series of accumulated imaginative inventions. That's kind of weird, isn't it? <laughs> well, he's a cynic, so he doesn't believe in anything, or didn't anyway. George Santayana wrote, "A country without a memory is a country of madmen." Ambrose Bierce writes, God alone knows the future, but only a historian can alter the past. Hegel writes, we learn from history that we never learn anything from history. And now one of my favorite quotes about history. Historians, it is said, fall into one of three categories. Those who lie, those who are mistaken, and those who don't know. It doesn't say much about history. Or historians, does it? (laughs) But as profound or ridiculous as some of these quotes are, it is a simple statement made by an American missionary of the late 19th and early 20th century, a man named A.T. Pearson, that stands really the test of all time in the annals of every and all nations and civilizations when he said very simply, history is his story. History is his story. Story, And that, in, in, in essence, is, is saying that, that history is Christ's story. From beginning to end. And the next 11 chapters of Isaiah will give substantial evidence that God is indeed at work in the nations of the world. There is someone actually in charge in the world. And it gives evidence that God is indeed at work in the nations of the world, and He is certainly in charge of all things in all of His creations, especially here on this earth. 
The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar learned a very valuable lesson the hard way. There was a prophecy given after all these dreams and stuff that, that he had and needed Daniel to in, interpret them. But in Daniel chapter 4, verse 25 listen, 25, listen to what is given to him. It says, they shall drive you from men. This came to pass, by the way, in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over you. But get the last part here. Till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. That is a tremendous statement about God in control of all things and God as the God of all history. And like I said, uh, Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way. He had become a, a tremendously, he was already an arrogant man, but he had become a tremendously arrogant person concerning himself, concerning everything surrounding him, he being some God in his own mind, as they say, a legend in his own mind. But God puts him in his place. God takes him through this very experience. Because when he became like one of the beasts of the field and he began to eat grass like oxen and was out there wed with the dew of heavens, what happened to him? He looked up. He looked up and he discovered that there was a God and there was truly one God and it wasn't him. <laughs> and God says to him through the prophet, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. The Apostle Paul would make the same pronouncement to the Athenian philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. If you look at verses 26 through 28, it says, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And notice this particular part of the verse. And has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. In commenting about that statue or uh, some uh, monument that was made to the unknown God, this is how Paul responds to that and says this, of, of, of the God who created the heavens and the earth, that God, He Himself is in control and in charge of all things, and He has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of men's dwellings, that we might search for Him, grope for Him, find Him, though He's not far from each of us. How sad. You know, it's a sad, a sad thought that God is not far from anyone, yet we are far from Him. Man is far from Him. I say we, I hope we're not. I hope we're next to Him. I hope we know that He's with us. I hope we know that He's in us if we love Him. But man in general, without Christ, they're, they're, you know, they're, He's near, but they're not near to Him. And the very fact that He says, for in Him we live and move and have our being, that means all of us, whether we are redeemed or unredeemed, whether we have come to know Christ or we're still unbelievers. 
We live and move and have our being because of God, because of the life that He's given us. You know, it's an interesting thought that if you look out through all, all of history, in every kind of cultural situation, in, whether in music or in art or in, 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 in anything, politics or, or poetry, you, you name it, literature, whatever it is, man has been given great and wondrous gifts. It is, though... Sad when we think that man will not recognize the God who gave them those gifts. And these philosophers got so close, they said, Oh, for we are all his, also his offspring. But the Bible teaches us that only those who have come to Christ are, in fact, those. Who have, been, who have the power to become the sons of God to as many as believe in His name. We're not born of the flesh or of the Spirit or blood, but of the will of God. And so as the world tries to teach the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God, the Bible teaches differently. There is a fatherhood of God over those who have received the Son. Well, we can go on and on there, but up to this point now in Isaiah, the prophecies in Isaiah have been aimed for the most part at God's people. They've been aimed at Israel and Judah. And now in chapters 11 through 23, he prophesies against the nations with whom Israel had to do in past centuries and some of whom it will have to meet in the coming day of the Lord. And while we know that judgment begins at the house of God and that the Lord has spoken first to Israel and to Judah, now he speaks against the nations beginning with Babylon. And the first thing to note here, the first thing to note is that the arrangement of Isaiah's prophecies is not always uh, in chronological order. In other words, it's not Babylon first and then whoever else second and whoever else third. It, it, it's not in chronological order. And so, he has, his, and so his point of departure is not in the history of his own time. But he has transferred by the spirit of prophecy to a prophetic vantage point. The era in which world power has shifted from Assyria to Babylon. Those of you who have been following us through the beginning from the beginning of, uh, of Isaiah, know that we've been talking a lot about Assyria and what Assyria was going to do to Israel and then to Judah. That was a near prophecy that was going to happen. But now this shifts here from Assyria to Babylon. And you see Isaiah's prophetic ministry ended around 685 B.C., which is nearly 100 years before Judah finally succumbed to the Babylonian Empire, which was 586 B.C. So at the time of this prophecy, Babylon was a nation of significance, but not really to the level of the status of Assyria. It wasn't as powerful as Assyria. As a matter of fact, it had been conquered by Assyria. And, and so yet we find here in this particular prophecy that the emphasis is first upon the burden that is to be given in prophecy to Babylon. And I want you to remember this about the Lord because this is how we have to continue to see prophecy as coming from the Lord in Isaiah 46 in verses 9 and 10. I want you to mark these verses down in your Bibles because it's important to turn there, it's important to look at these things, and it's important to see 
what it says about God and how He handles time and eternity. For it says here, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And notice what he says, declaring the end from the beginning. Declaring the end from the beginning. He, he transcends time. God transcends time because He created time. We're affected by time. God is eternal. It's really two different time continuums here we're dealing with. But he says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. And that phrase there in verse 10, from the ancient times, things that are not yet done. This is what's happening here in Isaiah chapter 13. He's speaking things that have not yet been done, but he sees them already. Why? Because he's God and he transcends time. He has declared the end from the beginning. And this particular prophecy against Babylon will last through... Chapter 14, so 13 and 14, and then it continues in the first part of chapter 21. So we come back to Babylon, even though the word Babylon isn't mentioned. uh, We'll we'll see how it, it is connected, though, in just a minute. Well, not in just a minute, but when we get to chapter 21. But and then these prophecies begin with a burden. If you'll notice again, verse 1 of Isaiah 13, it says, The burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos, or Amos, saw. Now, it is important to note the very fact that Isaiah's name is mentioned here because there are these theologians who have, you know, looked at all of the book of Isaiah and they have, uh, they have determined themselves, according to one thing or another, that uh, the book of Isaiah is not written only by one man, but some say with three men and three different time periods and all. And there's, the, you know, the first Isaiah, the second Isaiah, and the third Isaiah. But, but uh, you know, it says Isaiah here. They were trying to say that these particular prophecies from chapter 13 to 23, that these particular prophecies were actually, you know, written by somebody in a later time. But it tells us that it is Isaiah who saw the vision. And so why should we challenge what God is saying? If this is indeed God's Word. As we said on Sunday, we need to take God at His Word. Jesus recognized that Isaiah wrote all of Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus recognized that Daniel wrote all of Daniel's prophecy, even those theologians think that, you know, it was possible that somebody else wrote Daniel's prophecies. But it tells us here to make it clear to us that there is only one writer of this whole prophecy. As a matter of fact, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and they found the whole scroll of Isaiah, that in itself confirmed the fact that there was really only one author to the book of Isaiah. So the burden against Babylon, uh, Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. And so in prophetic literature now, a burden is a message of great weight and importance. We think of a beast of burden. We think of an animal that is made or designed uh, physically to carry large uh, weight on them or you know, large bundles of one thing or another. Uh, that's a beast of burden. And here we find the word burden. It is the word mazah or masah in, uh, in uh, Hebrew. And it comes from a, a word that, that means to carry or to lift, which again is where we get the root of this idea of a burden. But the word masah actually gives us a heaviness to the thought. It is a heavy message. Indeed, a heavy message. I'm not trying to be cool. 
Hey, it's heavy, man. But in reality, that's what it is. It's a heavy message. A heavy message in that it would produce great sorrow and it would produce great grief to those that it was directed toward. The word in the Hebrew, as I said, was mazah, to carry, to lift. But now there's something else. If you'll notice the burden against Babylon, to add in, into that thought that word, there's a second meaning. We get the word oracle or utterance from it. Some translations may say the oracle uh, against Babylon or the uh, utterance against Babylon. But it is saying that this is a heavy message lifted up and lifting up the voice of God, especially from God, lending the weight to the message themselves. So that one word is saying that to us. It is a heavy message from God against Babylon. That is as, as, as clear and as probably a, a literal translation as we can make it. It is a heavy oracle, a heavy message, a heavy utterance from God toward and against Babylon. The lesson is that judgment is serious. And you see, in the, in the body of Christ, we ourselves have to remember that judgment is serious. We are reminded of that certainly when we read the Old Testament. We are reminded of that when we read the New Testament. As we mentioned, I, I kind of made reference to it where the Scripture tells us that judgment begins first where? In the house of God. It begins there. And if it begins there, then what's going to happen to the world when they are judged? If judgment begins first in the house of God. So the lesson is that judgment is serious. And no judgment is to be taken lightly. But you see, when you begin to mess with the Word of God and you begin to take the Word of God and, and, and try to soften it and try to, you know, water it down, you know, you begin to lose the impact of the judgments that God is giving for the sake of warning, the judgments that God is giving for the sake of, of, of exhortation and admonishment to bring us back to that place where we can follow Him and do the things that honor Him as believers but we can't water that down and we can't water down what it, what it is saying to the nations. And if you open your eyes, I mean, for just a moment, think about this. And I'm not, I'm not coming down on you. I, I need to open my eyes. We all need to open our eyes to this very thing. That if you will look at what is taking place in the nations, in the nations today, in this world today, you can begin to realize that the more you read the Scriptures and you see what's happening in the world today, there are nations that are going to have to be judged by God for the things that they have done as nations, and America is no exception. This country is no exception. And we need to pray. That's why we are called to pray for our people, pray for our country, pray for our nation. The lesson is that judgment is serious. And no wonder, see, no wonder the prophets felt burdened. Using that word again, they felt burdened. There was the burden of the, of the prophets as they gave forth the prophecies against Israel, against Judah, and then, of course, against the nations. It was the very prophets themselves who were told, you know, that, that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God does not delight in judging in this manner. But it has to be done. Why? Because God is a righteous God. God is a just God. And His Word is true. 
We're told in the prophet Jeremiah, look at, listen to this very carefully. Jeremiah 23, verse 33. Listen to this. So when these people or the prophet or the priest ask you, saying, What is the oracle of the Lord? You shall say then, you shall then say to them, What oracle? I will even forsake you, says the Lord. Now understand this particular verse. I don't want it to go out of context here, but you know, the Lord is here speaking to Jeremiah. When the people or prophet ask you, saying, What is the oracle of the Lord? What is the oracle? The burden, the judgment, right? The utterance to lift up the voice. What is the oracle of the Lord? You then shall say to them, what oracle? And then this is what you tell them. I will even forsake you, says the Lord. That's the oracle. Do you see the seriousness of it? Do you see the weight of it? Why are the people asking the question? How often does God, in the book of Jeremiah, by the way, in the, in the next prophet uh, that we have, the major prophet Jeremiah, how many times... You know, is Jeremiah being told? These people are going to take, you know, they're going to have their own prophets. The prophets are going to say, hey, there's nothing going on that's wrong. There's nothing going on that's bad. They're watering down the word. He says, don't listen to them. These are false prophets. So you see that, that, again, the, the idea that judgment is not to be taken lightly. And there are two meanings now given to the word for Babylon. Now, even the word Babylon itself, think about this. There are two meanings given to the word of Babylon. One is that of confusion by mixing. Confusion by mixing, which tends to coincide with a word given to the tower in Genesis 10 and 11. What tower is that? Babel. Right? Turn to Genesis chapter 10. Listen to see if you're turning. Turn to Genesis chapter 10. And look at verses 8 through 10. There's a little bit of a genealogy here. Cush begot, begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That doesn't mean that he was just a you know, great hunter before God and, and God was just honoring him as a great hunter. No. He was a, literally, it says, he was a mighty hunter, hunter against the Lord. He was a mighty hunter against the Lord. And therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom, notice, was what? Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar or Shinar. But Babel. And then if you jump over to Genesis 11, verses 7 through 9, you know the story. Come, let us go down. This is God speaking. Come, let us go down. Who's us? The Godhead. The one God in three persons. Let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad uh, from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, it is name, uh, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So there's that confusion by mixing. That's, that's what the word, uh, one of the meanings is, the first meaning that we want to look at. Confusion by mixing. And so in Scripture, Babylon represents symbolically the world system that man has built in rebelliousness and disobedience to God. It is the world system that man has built. Listen carefully. Man built this system. If you read carefully in chapters 10 and 11, you find out that man begins to make bricks to do what? To build their cities. 
when God all along commanded His people to build their cities out of stone. Or to build out of stone. Why? Because God made the stone. Man makes bricks. What is brick? It's a combination of a lot of things. You know, mud and slop and this, hay and all kinds of other stuff. But, but man makes its own bricks. Why? Because man is striving. And what does the Tower of Babel teach us? <laughs> the striving to reach God man's own way and not God's way. So there's rebellion there. There is disobedience there. And so the two contrasting cities in the Scriptures are what? Jerusalem and Babylon. The two contrasting cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. Okay, those of you that went to Israel, you've been to Jerusalem. What was the wall made of? Stone. What were all most of the houses there made of? That white, beautiful limestone. Stone. What God wanted them to build their, uh, their city with. So one is the chosen city of God. The other is the wicked city of man. God's city will last forever. Man's rebellious city will be utterly destroyed. Listen to this. Revelation 14, verse 8. And another angel angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon has fallen. That's coming. Revelation 16, verse 19. Now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. And so this is partly what we are seeing in chapter 13 of Isaiah is the beginning of the end for Babylon. There are two. The near and the far. The near fulfillment and the far fulfillment. The near fulfillment would be in the time that Isaiah is, is able to see in, in the near future, past Assyria and Babylon when it becomes a, a world power where they almost, you know, the, uh, well, they are in control of what was the known world then, not long after Isaiah, 100 years or so. But then there is another Babylon as we see in the book of Revelation. So there are two. And this goes along with our understanding of prophecy, the near fulfillments and the far fulfillments. Now let me ask you this question. Is there any reason for God to be speaking to Babylon? Is there any reason for God to be speaking to Babylon? Is He trying to warn them? In other words, why is this here where it says the burden against Babylon? Well, it is necessary to understand that this prophecy was probably never published or presented in any way in Babylon. And so it wasn't given as a warning to them. It was first uh, of all given for the people of God to give them hope. It was given first of all to the people of God to give them hope. In other words, their God was just and He would judge the wicked nations around them. So it was first to the people of God to give them hope. Secondly, the prophecies in general were given as a judgment of sinners in general, no matter what the national origin. So as we look through some of these judgments in our, in our Bibles today, 
We would all only have to see what it was that they were doing, what things were they were committing, what uh, sins or what uh, uh, kind of awful things or wickedness that they were committing to say, well, there is a general uh, judgment that's coming to anyone doing that, no matter what national origin. And then lastly, they were given, these prophecies were given as a warning toward Judah. Listen carefully. A warning toward Judah against making political alliances with other nations. It was a warning for Judah not to make political alliances with other nations. Why? Because Judah's only ally was her God. Judah's only ally was her God. God said, you don't have to align yourself with everybody. I will be your deliverance. I will go before you. I will fight your battles. I will will rescue you. I will take care of you. If you'll listen to me, if you'll trust me, if you'll follow me, if you'll do what I say, I will take care of you. Judah's only ally was to be her God. So that was a good reason why these prophecies were given. To remind Judah, listen... This is what happens to those who come against you. But don't be foolish to join up with them. You trust me. And then if you look at the next part of Isaiah 13, verses 2 through 5. By the way, we are moving on. Verse 2 says, Lift up a banner on the high mountain. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter the gates. In other words, make, you know, make all kinds of noise. Wave the banners. This is the city that's going to be attacked. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exultation. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like that of many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. That doesn't mean He put mustard on them, okay? He's gathering the armies together. I'm trying to clarify, you know. Sounds good, especially when you're hungry. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country from the end of heaven. The Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Listen, the second meaning. I told you there were two meanings for Babylon. The second meaning is this. The second meaning for the word of Babylon is found in this section of the passage. The word in its Babylonian language. The word for Babylon in its Babylonian language means gateway to a god gateway to the gods either way gateway to a god or gateway to the gods or as in our text there in verse 2 the gates of the nobles there's the name you see lift up a banner on the high mountain raise your voice to them wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles what is it babylon I have commanded my sanctified one, he says. And so the picture that is given in verse 2 is that of getting a banner put up high on a hill at a point where it could be seen to signal troops to come and attack the city. This was often done in the warfare of the time. There would be those who would take and raise the the banners around the city so that from a far distance the armies that were coming could see there's the city we're going to. 
Banners would be raised up high. And if you were inside that city trying to protect yourself, you'd look to see how big is this army coming. There wouldn't be that sort of arrogance that says, you know, here these banners are raised up high, you know, by this little, you know, group of people going out there, maybe just a handful of people to get this whole city. They have to be very confident that uh, when, when they raise those banners, all of their armies would be able just to come and sweep down upon that city. But you see now the sovereignty of God is working here. The sovereignty of God is working here and that he is able to call any army that he desires. He is able to call any army he desires to accomplish any task that he assigns. And I said any army. And the army that he's mustering is that of the Medes. The Medes. I want you to look down at verse 17 of chapter 13. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. They weren't looking for that. They just, wanted to, they just wanted to take over. They just wanted to conquer. Jump over to Isaiah 21, verse 2. Remember I said that 21 is also going to be a prophecy against Babylon, or part of the prophecy against Babylon. In, in Isaiah 21, verse 2, it says, A distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunder plunders. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media. And that's Medea, actually. All its sighing I have made to cease. Medea, of course, the Medes. It is interesting that God calls them his sanctified ones. You think, well, wait a minute now. I mean, do these guys believe in God? Do they believe in the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? For him to call them that? No. Understand this. What does it mean to sanctify? What does it mean, what does it mean to have the sanctified ones? The sanctified ones were the, the ones set apart by God for a given purpose. The ones set apart by God for a given purpose. And He has set apart these people. Even though they didn't believe in the God of Israel, He has set them apart to be the ones who would come and destroy Babylon. And nevertheless, the Medes and the Persians were being set apart by God to do that work of destroying that very city of Babylon. And this brings us to another lesson for us in light of God's hand in history. Here's another lesson. There are times like today. There are times like the present. When we wonder, and and listen carefully, I mean, we're wondering about this right now. There are times like the present when we wonder if a few crazy madmen are going to destroy the whole planet. And I can think of two in particular today that act as if they're really ready to. A little crazy man in North Korea and an even crazier and more dangerous person in Iran. And think about what they're trying to do and think about the things that they're saying and, and, and the way they're, they're, they're thumbing their noses at everybody in the world. People should worry who don't know the Lord. People should, should, should really be scared who don't know Christ, who don't know God. Some of us who lived back in the 60s 
remember the nuclear threats. There were times when we had to go through these drills, you know, uh, Civil, well, Civil Air Patrol was a little before that, but, but you know, these, they had these signs, you know, where you had to go into these basements and you had to get underneath tables and stuff because, you know, in the case of some kind of a, a nuclear blast of some sort. Interesting times. But I want you to remember that God isn't going to let anything happen that he hasn't already planned on happening. That's the comfort for us. Should we stay awake? Yes. Should we stay alert? Yes. Should we be ready? Yes. Should we be preparing to be ready? Yes. Should we be waiting for the kingdom of God? Yes. All of these things? Yes, 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 yes. Be ready. Don't fall asleep. Don't put your guard down. Why? Because the Lord's coming. There's a good reason why he's coming. I'll tell you at the end. There's a good reason. But see, that's what's, that's what's happening here. And, and, it, and it's affecting our day and time. I hate to say it, but we've got some crazy people in our own country too. Well, I won't mention any names. <clears throat> Look at verse 6. This is the key to this whole chapter. Wail. In other words, weep, prof- weep profusely, bitterly, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, if you remember, we talked about the day of the Lord in chapter 2. And we dealt with, you know, the seriousness of what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord, of course, is that time that is yet to come. The day of the Lord is coming It's a day of darkness, not of light. It's a day of great gloom. It's a day of great destruction. I'll talk a little bit more about it in just a moment. But here he says, Wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. Now what is the prophecy telling us? That there's a near fulfillment and there's a far fulfillment yet to come. So wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as a destruction. Or it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt. And they will be afraid. And I don't, you know, in the English, it doesn't really capture the, you know, the fright of of the Hebrew in this picture. It doesn't really capture the, uh, you know, the anxieties of this day. But notice, hands will be limp. No strength. Hearts will melt. You know, that's happening a lot today. Stress is destroying so many people. And their hearts are weakened over one thing or another. You know, aside from the fact that in many cases, you know, sometimes we're killing ourselves by the things that we eat and the things we ought to be eating and not not eating and things we shouldn't be eating and we are, you know, all that kind of stuff. But then there's the added stress of, of, of just the pressures of life, the pressures of the job, the pressures of this world, the pressures of, of international chaos and collapse. We've got so much going on and hearts are going to go limp and they're going to go melt or hands are going to go limp and, and, and hearts are going to melt worse than today. And if we think it's bad now, 
What is it going to be like in the day of the Lord? They will be afraid, but notice what goes on in verse 8. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. Birth pangs and sorrows. Notice the combination there. Will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Historically, you see, the city of Babylon was completely destroyed in 689 B.C. by Sennacherib and the Assyrian army. <coughs> but it was rebuilt by Sennacherib's son. In 539 B.C., Darius the Mede captured the city. You'll read that in Daniel chapter 5, verse 31. Just read Daniel 5. But he didn't destroy it. In the centuries that followed, Babylon had its great moments in history. But after Alexander the Great, who was its last conqueror, after he died, the city would decline until it was no more. The city was never rebuilt. And Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled. That was the near fulfillment. But there's something more significant in Isaiah's prophecy that we don't want to miss. And it would be pretty hard to miss if we understand the statement, wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. Because in his vision, Isaiah was seeing something more than a local event. In the fall of Babylon, he saw a picture of the day of the Lord. Look at the three times that we see it in this chapter alone. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Look at verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and He will destroy its sinners from it. Isaiah 13, verse 13. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of His fierce anger. Three times he mentions the day of the Lord. And Isaiah is giving a description of that time when God will pour out His wrath on the whole world as we see in verse 11. It says there in verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. The arrogance and the conceit of the wicked. The picture that is given of a woman in travail is often used in Scripture to depict a time of judgment. We see it first of all in verse 8. Go back to verse 8. And they will be afraid. And there it is. Pangs and what? Sorrows. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Go down to Isaiah 21 one more time. Isaiah 21 verse 3. It says, therefore, my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me. Like the pangs of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. Jump down to Isaiah 26, verse 17. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs when she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. Judgment upon judgment. Sorrow upon sorrow. Jeremiah 6:24 Look at this we have heard the report of it our hands grew feeble anguish has taken hold of us sounds like the passage we just read there in, in Isaiah 13 about the hands and the heart and anguish has taken hold of us pain as of a woman in labor by the way two different prophets 
God spoke to both of them the same prophetic message. That tells me there's one God in control of all things. And God doesn't make mistakes. Micah chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. I know I'm giving you a lot of stuff fast here. I hope you're jotting down the references. Look them up later. Micah chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field. And to Babylon you shall go. Notice, there you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Jesus himself in Matthew 24 verse 8 said, All these are the beginnings of sorrows. And that word is tied in to birth pains. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3. I know I'm giving you a lot here, but bear with me. Paul says, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. Folks, that's the day of the Lord. And Isaiah was looking beyond that day to the day when the world system known as Babylon would be destroyed. You can see a better picture of that in Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 18. I want to give you two verses from Revelation 18 so you can see the picture. It says there in Revelation 18, verse 2, And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. I know I've read this already. And has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. That I didn't read, because it's a different verse. Revelation 18, verse 21 says, Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. But I want you to take the rest of the passage in our text down to verse 13. So go back to Isaiah 13 now, verses 9 through 13. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger. Wrath and fierce anger. To lay the land desolate. And he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. It's an interesting thing about stars of heaven and their constellations. We'll see some verses that uh, tie into that. But uh, it's interesting that uh, the word there for constellations was actually pointing out one particular constellation called Orion. We see Orion t- tonight in, in the winter skies. And it's already happening, you know, uh, right before the time change, we were starting to see Orion in the evening sky. Very distinctive kind of constellation. But Orion is actually the person, it's speaking of the person of Nimrod. And so the Jews are not, weren't very big on the constellations. And this is the reason why these things are mentioned as, it, as they are. It says, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. And it's almost, it's almost prophetic in the sense that at some point all these nations that have been so wicked and so powerful 
are going to end in their in their in their power. It says that the sun will be darkened and it's going forth and the moon will not give it or will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will ha- I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold. Listen to this. A man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. More rare than the gold. How much destruction is he saying is going to happen? And therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. A whole lot of shaking going on. Wow, I just just said that and you laughed. And I I thought, oh, I didn't think about that. It's an old song. (laughs) A whole lot of shaking going on. That's right. So much so that the earth will move out of her place. You know, that in a sense is going to cause great cataclysm in the heavens. Or vice versa, that all of the stuff happening in the heavens is going to cause that to happen to the earth. Either way, there was a great shaking, and there will be a great shaking. There are certain comparisons to be made with other portions of Scripture, and I've got to do this very quickly because of time. But for example, we can look at verse 10 now. Look at verse 10 about the constellation and the stars of heaven. We can look at verse 10 of our text and compare it to a couple of places. Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. Jesus said, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. In Joel chapter 2, verse 10, it says, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, it says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Folks, people think that heaven is so... I should say, people think that Hollywood is so clever. And all of its disaster movies and all of its cataclysmic and apocalyptic type of movies that they've shown in the last 10, 15 years. All the graphics have really gotten amazing and you know, astounding. We sit there going, woo, you know, and all these things happening, you know. And I think, they don't know nothing. Pardon my English. They don't know nothing. They might have some idea, but it's nothing compared to what God is going to do when man is left to his judgment. Man without God is left to his judgment. And you see, we have been given a tremendous amount of scriptural consistency in all these verses found through the Old and New Testaments in dealing with the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. It is something we can say And that is that history is in the making. And all of it has been seen already by God who is the Most High, who rules in the kingdom of man and gives to whomever He chooses. The consolation is for those who believe in the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. The consolation, the comfort is given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry about these things that are going to happen. 
We should be concerned. We should be concerned with those who don't know Christ. We should be concerned that they need to come to Christ because when these things happen, these things will happen to all those who are without Christ in this world. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9-11, through 11, For God did not appoint us, believers in Jesus Christ, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. God didn't appoint us to this wrath. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul said, It's to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The day of the Lord is a dreadful day. When the church is taken home, as we believe the Scriptures teach us, a day begins. It will be a day of darkness and not a day of light. People should take heed to the Word of God. You know, it's a sad thing that a lot of people today, especially in seeker-sensitive churches and big churches, you know, they're trying to impress the thousands and have the thousands come. Listen, they, 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 don't, even, they don't even want to go to the prophecies. They say, you know, well, we don't want to go there. We, we want people to feel comfortable. We want people to feel happy. We want people to go out the door with a happy face and, you know, smile on their face. Listen, it is better to wail over our sin today and surrender it to God and to get His forgiveness now than it is to forsake all of that. And then when the day of the Lord comes, the Bible is very clear, there will be a day when the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and people will not be saved. Today is the day of salvation. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to know Him. And you need to receive Him. And you need to be rescued by Him from that which we have read today. Because if we believe God's Word to be true, then these things are yet to happen. But when they happen, there will be a day of of great dread. Better to be waiting for the coming of the Lord. Better to be ready for that trumpet to sound and the dead in Christ to to rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to be with the Lord in the air and to ever be with the Lord. Comfort them, one another, with those words. Let's pray.